Hey, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 7. You find Esther in the Old Testament, just in front of the book of Psalms and Job. Jeanette, you have a card for someone that you were asking. Okay, Esther. Okay, Esther Myers Bureau. I don't, I don't know her, but um, she's a local lady. She was. Yeah, in palliative care. care. In Oliver now. In Oliver. Okay. 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 So see Jeanette. Okay. <laughs> Esther Myers Bureau. Okay. All right. Hey, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for, uh, for your word today. I thank you, Lord, that it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, I thank you that um, the written word leads us to the living word. That's why we love your word, God, because it leads us to Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning uh, as, as we... Uh, tackle this passage, this section of the story of Esther, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just anoint this time, that you'd speak to each one of our hearts. God, we pray that, I pray, Lord, this morning that every heart would be led to Jesus here. And so, uh, Jesus, be at the center, and uh, we ask for your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on, so Esther 6 kind of left us hanging. I don't know what else to say. Uh, by the end of chapter 7, it's going to be Haman that's hanging, okay? We, we left off in uh, this suspenseful story. Haman is being rushed from his home to the king's palace where he is, uh, the king's servants, his attendants, his eunuchs came and it took Haman and he is going off to attend a second banquet in consecutive days at the palace hosted by uh, Queen Esther, just as a reminder, you know, poor old Haman had a rough day. Um, things hadn't exactly gone according to plan for him on that particular day. We recall that in his hatred for one man, Mordecai, Jew, a man who would, a Jew who would not acknowledge his his position, uh, Haman had plotted murder, but not just Mordecai's murder. He had plotted genocide for an entire people group within the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, 15 million were on his hit list because he hated one man. The day of the genocide was marked on the calendar as the day of uh, the, the 12th month, the 13th day. On our calendar, it corresponds this way, actually. March 5th would be the corresponding date this year. Because the Hebrew calendar, of course, starts in April with Passover, and that's their first month, okay? And so the equivalent is March 5th. I thought, hey, it's kind of timely that next week we'll eat Haman's ears and watch a movie, okay? Uh, in his hatred for one man, Mordecai, uh, in, in his hatred for this one man, Mordecai, who had refused to, to bow or even to acknowledge him, Haman in anger, as we've seen in, in the story here, decided that he could not wait nine months to take care of the one guy. And so he, he plotted and he schemed and he built a gallows on his property that stood 75 feet tall. And he had gone that morning to the palace to request permission from the king to take Haman and to take his life. Now, as the providence of God would have it, Haman's scheme corresponded with a sleepless night for the king. The king couldn't sleep that night before Haman appeared in his presence. And it was that night when he was being read a bedtime story and being uh, reminded of some of the things that had happened in his kingdom over the years that a story was read that recounted how Mordecai had uh, uncovered a plot to take the king's life. And the king discovered that he had never bestowed on Mordecai any honor for saving his life. And so that morning, as Haman came to the palace to request uh, permission from the king to have Mordecai murdered, um, before he could make his request, the king instructed Haman to instead lead his foe 
Mordecai in a triumphal procession around the city of Susa, you know, wearing the king's robes, wearing the king's crown, riding on the king's horse, with Haman making the proclamation, so shall it be done for a man in whom the king delights to honor. Incredible irony in the story. It's awesome. And in shame we saw, with his head covered and in mourning, Haman hurried off to his home after a disastrous day. And he told his wife and he told his servants and his family what had happened to him. And the response of his wife was a real encouraging word. She said, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is, a, is of the Jewish people, then, then surely you will not overcome him, but you will fall before him. And so with those ominous words still hanging in the air, the king's eunuchs arrived to whisk Haman off to Esther's banquet. So we come to chapter 7 this morning. And in fact, this recounts, it's Esther's second banquet. This is the seventh banquet, in the, the seventh feast in the book of Esther so far. And they're not all done yet. Now the prospect of attending this second dinner hosted by Queen Esther had obviously, and we've seen this, appealed to the pride of Haman. Less than 24 hours earlier, this man was, was bragging to his friends, bragging to his family, bragging to his wife and his servants about it. And now as he is ushered to the palace, brought before the queen and the king to have dinner with them, we imagine that there must have been a bit of a mixture of feelings going on in his heart as he arrives at the palace. Thrilled with the honor, thrilled with the honor he was receiving, and mortified by the honor that Mordecai had received. Probably if he had realized uh, the nationality of Queen Esther at this point in the story, he might have run for his life or fallen on his knees before the king and, and begged for mercy rather than uh, go to dinner. You know, as you consider this story, it's clear that God's put many things into play. Although his name's never mentioned in the story of Esther, um, God is doing many things behind the scenes. You, you know, you might, you're tempted to call them circumstances. I don't, I don't know what else you refer to them as. Uh, maybe we should refer to them as God's warning. God has been warning Haman. He's been putting certain things in front of this man constantly to warn him of the impending danger that's in front of him. That he would see the warning and that he would repent of his actions. And so there's been circumstances, you know, there has been the voice of his wise men speaking to him. Uh, his wife has spoken to him. God has given plenty of opportunities for Haman to make an about face. But he wouldn't heed the things that were obviously in front of him. You know, the scripture says this in Proverbs chapter 16, that the Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And, and God is not willing that any should perish. You know, I just think about that in the story of Haman. God was not willing that Haman should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. The scripture tells us, and we know this by experience, that God is patient, that God is long-suffering, but people make a terrible mistake when they um, equate the long-suffering and the patience of God with a failure on God's part to act. When they equate his long-suffering and his patience as a reason for them to be unrepentant, and obstinate in their direction. See, see, God's long-suffering we see in the scripture is an opportunity for mankind to repent, to turn from the direction of their life. It's, it's not an excuse to continue in rebellion. The, there is no peace and there is no safety uh, for the sinful in the world. The Bible warns that destruction will come swiftly, that destruction can come without warning. You know, we, we say... Today is the day of salvation. That's what the scripture says. And that's the reality. You know, today might be your last opportunity to respond to the Lord. And so the scripture says in many places, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond. Because you do not know when the day of destruction will come. And it was coming quickly for Haman, though God had been warning him.
we read in chapter seven of verse one, it says this. So the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. And on, the sec- on, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It should be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So since the day before, you know, King Ahasuerus, we just imagine, was wondering what was going on with his wife and what was going on in her heart that was so heavy upon her. Uh, perhaps the Lord had used that. Perhaps that had been the reason why the king had had a sleepless night. So after dinner, to get to the heart of the matter, he, he once again broaches the subject with his wife and he makes this uh, repeated offer to her that we, that we saw last week, this request, I'll give you up to half, to my, half of my kingdom uh, just tell me w- what's on your heart. And the offer was really meant to put her at ease. To, it was an offer s- so that she would know, you know, whatever it is, he, he would meet her request. He would be generous towards her. Verse three says, And Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish. And my people for my request, for we have been sold, and I, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Now, I just imagine Esther repeated this, what she was going to say over and over and over to that that morning or the day before and she had, she'd covered those words in prayer and as they spilled forth from her lips to the king uh, the, the strength of God was made manifest in her and I, and I think you know I'm sure that these words caught the king by surprise I mean who would dare to seek the life of his queen and her people Now remember the king didn't know her nationality. I guess maybe he just assumed you're Medo-Persian, aren't you? Like me? And then come to think of it, wow, actually I've I've never clarified that. I just assumed she was one of us. And you know, as she makes this appeal to the king, give me my life, her, her words echo Haman's decree. Did you hear them as I read them? to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Those were the very words that he had used in his decree of doom that had been sent out throughout the provinces of the kingdom, almost word for word. And I wonder if Haman, as he sat there, uh, heard those verbatim words that his scribes had written at his instruction for the destruction of the Jews and if they rung in his ears as they came off her lips. Her life was in danger. And Esther accused no one. She simply stated the fact, spare me my life. I'm in danger. And she appealed to the king. She made it clear that she was dependent on his favor. Uh, she didn't tell him what to do. She just asked that her life be spared. And she said, if it's, if it's merely a matter of me and my people being sold into slavery, then she would have kept her silence. She would have held her peace. She wouldn't have bothered the king over a matter like this, but this was not slavery. It was murder. It was genocide of a people. Though she didn't state the width and the breadth of the plan, like I mentioned earlier, it was 15 million people that would be killed in this plan. The Medo-Persian Empire at the time uh, had 100 million. And so it's a huge portion of the population of the empire, and it included Esther, the queen. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? Uh, Like I said, I I think this whole thing caught the king by surprise. It's like he doesn't realize that such a plan is afoot in his kingdom. He doesn't realize yet at this point that he's played a part in this scheme. He doesn't realize that the decree for the destruction of the Jewish people was part of a a conspiracy that he had essentially signed off on. He had essentially signed off on the murder of his own wife. And he certainly hasn't realized that 
the conspirator lies on a couch just a few feet from him. Yet at this point, oh, the drama. Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? And immediately, you know, the queen's enemy is made her husband's enemy. And he demands to know who the schemer is. Verse 6. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I mean, this is just another part of the story where just oh to see the expression on Haman's face. You know, just, just to have that bird's eye view. You know, God is moving in the story. I mean, we've seen that. Though his name's not mentioned, he's moving. He's working in the shadows. He's working in the background on behalf of his people. He's watching over those who are his own. And to the king's surprise, the schemer was his favorite officer. His favorite officer was the schemer and the conspirator who had planned the whole thing. Now Esther, you know, didn't reveal that Haman didn't know that she was a Jewess. I mean, it's, this whole thing is just worked out perfectly. You know, had he, had he known that she was a Jew, he would have made some sort of concession, I imagine, in his plan. But the fact that Esther had kept quiet regarding her nationality had really been a, a work of God's providence, I think, in the background of this story. Uh, God was at work. He, he was working for the favor of his people in this situation. And again, the king is caught by surprise. So just to digest this thing, he gets up from, the, from dinner and he, he, he leaves the room and goes off into his garden to contemplate this whole situation. Verse seven. Then the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. King couldn't believe I would say that Haman would do such a thing but the queen had begged. She had, she had pleaded for her life uh, because of Haman and the king believed his wife. He, he took his wife at her word. And he needed time to cool off. He had to have a moment to think clearly and to consider this whole thing and how he would deal with the man who had been his trusted advisor, his prime minister. And, and as we read this, as we go over, now, now in the background, you know, we just understand why God directed Esther to delay her plea, you know, at the first meal or when she first came before the throne of the king, as we saw in previous chapters, God wanted the king to discover once again what Mordecai had done for him. Just th it was just that night before that he was reminded that Mordecai had saved his life. That Mordecai was a Jew and that he deserved to be honored as one who was a loyal subject to the king. Not a traitor, not someone dangerous, not someone looking to undermine the, the kingdom. It was a Jew who had saved the king's life. And why should the king now exterminate all of the Jewish people? And so he's, we just imagine wrestling through these things. And in the meantime, Haman stays in the room with the queen knowing that his life is in trouble. Down on his hands and knees, begging for his life. Uh, at this point... I would say he knew that the queen was his only hope for survival, that she would somehow have mercy on him. You know, and I just think about Haman. He, he'd been furious over one Jew. I mean, pic picture what's going on here in your mind. Furious over one man who would not bow before him, plotted the murder and the genocide of an entire people group, and now it's, been a, it's a whole role reversal. He's on his hands and knees before a Jewish woman begging for his life. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace, from the palace garden, to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? It's just bad to worse for this guy. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So here's a king. He comes back into the room, and... and he sees the whole scene, 
Haman is begging for his life. He's at the feet of the queen, clutching her feet or pulling out her dress or whatever it is. And the king even accuses him of trying to molest the queen or whatever. And it's from bad to worse for this guy. From worse to worser. Bad English, but I don't know. It's worser. Worser. And his true character has been exposed, you know, and and Satan's plan to destroy the line of promise and the line of the Messiah has, has been thwarted by the Lord and by the sovereignty of God and by the hand of providence. You know, Scripture says, our help comes from the Lord. You know, uh, Psalm 121 says this, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. You know, I was thinking about that psalm and it says this. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. That word behold means stop and think about this. You need to contemplate this. If you want to understand God's faithfulness to you, you must consider his faithfulness to Israel. He, he will not allow Israel's foot to slip or slumber, and therefore, he will not allow your foot to slip. Or, for you, or will he slumber? God says, remember my relationship with Israel and recall my faithfulness to you. I won't, I, I won't slumber with you. I won't let your foot slip and at the word of the king Haman's face is covered the whatever the dark cloth goes over his head and he is led out of the presence of the king verse 9 you gotta love this because obviously rumors were floating around the palace obviously you know Haman had been lipping off about what he was going to do to Mordecai and we read in verse 9 then Harbona one of the king's eunuchs in attendance on the king Sorry, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet. And the king said, Hang him on it. Now you can laugh because it's ironic. It's, it's great. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I imagine as I read this story that Harbona was probably the one who went and got Mordecai or got Haman to bring him to dinner at the palace. Hey man, what's what's that all about? Oh, there's a guy named Mordecai. I'm gonna hang him on it. You know, and Harbona had seen the whole thing. Uh, and so unfortunately for Haman, he you know, he went to dinner, he didn't realize it was a necktie party. And yeah, come on. The king was the king was judge and jury. You might say that that night Haman came to the end of his rope. Um, or that more likely in that culture he was impaled, so he really got the point. Okay, if you know what I mean. You know what, the scripture says this. Um, Job said this. He said, as I've seen, those who plow iniquity will sow trouble and reap the same. In Proverbs 22, verse 8, it says this, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. David said this in Psalm 37. He said, I've seen the wicked man, the, the ruthless man, spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressor, transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. You know, the Bible tells us this time and time again, that a man reaps what he sows. It, it, it should cause us to stop and, and, and ponder and, and, and consider that. If he does right, he sows accordingly. If he does wrong and acts, you know, sinfully and in iniquity, he, he will receive what he has sowed. 
If we sow in the flesh, the scripture says, like Haman, we will reap death. But if we sow in the spirit, the New Testament tells us, we reap everlasting life. A man reaps what he sows. And you know, you consider Haman, all the wealth, talked about his wealth, all the position, talked about that, the, the way that he rose to prominence and received you know, all these different positions in the government, the, the power that he had. And none of those things, his wealth or his power or his position could save him from death. A man sows what he reaps. I mean, you could think of lots of characters in the scripture. In my mind, I think of Jacob who schemed to take his brother's um, inheritance and he killed an animal and he lied to his father and he dressed up like Esau. And in the end, he had to slip away and hide. Though he'd received the inheritance and the blessing of his father, it, it, the pattern reaped itself in his life later on. When his 11 sons, or sorry, 10 of his sons, took his favorite son, Joseph, and they sent him off and sold, sold him into slavery into the land of Egypt and they killed an animal and they shed blood and they said, your son is dead. It's like the pattern repeated itself in his life. Or you think of David who took his neighbor's wife and committed adultery with her and, and plotted the murder of her husband who had served as a loyal soldier in his army and as one of his mighty men. And though God forgave David's sin, the whole mess was sowed into his life and it reaped terrible things later on. His own son took his concubines and slept with them. His own, another one of his sons uh, raped his sister and eventually three of his sons were killed. He, he sowed something into his life and though God forgave it, the pattern later repeated itself in his own family and he paid a, a dreadful price. And the warning here in the story of Haman is this, a man sows what he reaps. So be careful uh, what you sow. You know, as I read this, I think there, there, there's great personal lessons for us in that, but there's also a lesson in this story regarding the nation of Israel you know, every enemy that has tried to destroy the nation of Israel has been destroyed. You know, there's a, a quote out there that, that says, uh, Israel's attended the funeral of every one of her enemies. You know, to Abraham, the Lord promised, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. That was a promise for Abraham and it was a promise for his descendants. And God has kept that promise. That's just the reality. It's a promise that God takes seriously even when nations and the world around challenge it or ignore it. Now that doesn't mean that God necessarily approves of everything that Israel has done or will do, but it does mean that God does not approve of those who try to destroy Israel. Now I think of my own life. God loves me, he's chosen me, he's saved me. Does that mean that he approves of everything in my life? No. But I'm being fashioned to, to, to follow him. He's changing us. And so, you know, when we think of Israel, whether it's, it's Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Haman or Hitler, the enemy of the Jews is the enemy of God and will not succeed. Now we come to chapter 8. It says this. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. He said, this, this man's my cousin, but my parents are dead. And he's raised me like I was his own child. And we read in verse 2, And the king took off his signet ring, and he, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So all of a sudden, the, the king discovers that um, he has relatives that he didn't know about. Mordecai moves from being the victim in this situation to becoming the victor. 
The, the signet ring of Haman is given to him. He's promoted in the kingdom. Like Daniel was before him, like Joseph before him, he becomes second in command in a great Gentile kingdom, the prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the year is 474 B.C. That was the year. The Medo-Persian Empire, I mean, think about it. The Medo-Persian Empire has a Jewish queen and a Jewish prime minister. I think God's at work on behalf of his people. It, you know, in fact, you know, you might say it, it, it never looked better for God's people except for this fact. The murderous edict that Haman, Haman had decreed was still alive and well. And in the laws of the Medo-Persians, the decree of doom for the Jews could not be changed. It could not be revoked even by the king himself. And so unless there was further intervention in less than nine months, in fact, if we go back and you just do the math on the calendar here, 17 days, only 17 days has passed since Haman originally issued the decree. Uh, he, he had it out that bad for Mordecai. So there's almost nine months left for the Jews before the 13th day of the 12th month comes and the genocide that is scheduled to take place. Read in verse three. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, love that picture. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it please the king and if I have favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews. In the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king says, you have my permission. Yes, one edict has been written. I can't revoke it, but I give you permission to now write another edict that cannot be revoked. You know, I think of this world, you know, that old hallelujah chorus that says the kingdom of our Lord and of his Lord. God's a king and God has a kingdom and he sits on a throne. And like the Medo-Persian empire, our world, the kingdom of this world that God rules over is, is governed by a law that cannot be revoked, it cannot be reversed, it cannot be revised, it cannot be rescinded, it cannot be nullified, and the law is this. Ezekiel said it. The soul who sins shall die. Pa Paul in the New Testament said it this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In, in other words, there is a decree of doom that is over the entire earth, that just as it was over the Medo-Persian Empire, there is a decree of doom of death that encompasses the kingdom of our Lord. We know God can't save us even if we live, you know, God can't save us by our perfection, I would say, because none of us is perfect. God can't save us in our imperfection because his standard is perfection and he will not and he cannot lower his standard in regards to sin. And this is the problem of man. It's the predicament of all humanity. A death sentence. 
a decree of doom. And the problem is not someone else. I like to think that when I think of myself. Oh, it's, they're the problem. The problem is not someone else. The problem is not somewhere else. The problem is right here for me. And the problem is the, in the very same place for you. The problem is in me and the problem is in you. And you cannot look to anyone else but only into your own heart. And I would say this, the human heart is polluted by sin. You know, it's, it's like a polluted stream. And from the human heart comes forth evil and sin and scheming and plotting. And as Ahasuerus sat as judge and jury over Haman, so the Lord is judge and jury over this earth. He has to judge. He has to judge in his righteousness. And the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews chapter uh, 9 that it is appointed that men die once and after that they face judgment. And it's a reality. It can't be altered. It can't be moved. This is not a rule that can be changed or rescinded or, re or removed or revised. It's a universal law that governs our world. And, and, and it's not a comfortable thing to talk about, is it? It's not a comfortable thing to, to hear. It's not a comfortable thing to share or, or declare. But it's the truth. It's reality. And in regards to our story, though, I, I would say this. Haman's been stopped. Like I said, he got the point. Uh, the decree of doom is still in effect. And the thing about Haman was that he just dug a pit and he fell in it to himself as well at the same time. And the king could not change the edict, but he could give Mordecai authority to write another. Let's read on, verse nine. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend themselves, look at this wording, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So Mordecai wrote a new decree. Now we've got two decrees, both sealed with the signet ring of the king. Uh, the second to counteract the first decree, the decree of doom, I would call one the decree of doom and the other the decree of grace. And the decree of grace allowed for self-defense for all the Jewish people throughout the empire. And the decree of grace was sent throughout all the 127 provinces of Ahasuerus. Written in the languages of the people uh, to each province in its own script in, in each, to each people in their own language. And, and it was sent out just as the previous decree had been sent out. Signed by the king. Sealed with his signet ring. And this new decree, the decree of grace, changed the whole picture uh, for the Jews and really for everyone. And within the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, they employed every means of communication to make known this decree of grace. They got on Twitter, Facebook, 
email, internet, Instagram, you know, radio, television, whatever means possible, they made known the decree of grace to all people. Whatever it took. Horses, camels, mules, from Ethiopia to India, across river and desert and mountain and valley, met with joy by some and resistance by others and indifference by others. The messengers went out throughout the kingdom and they proclaimed the good news of grace. A decree of grace for all the Jews. And if they received the message in time and believed the message, their lives would be saved. In the kingdom of this world, there's a decree of doom that, that wraps the entire earth, that affects all mankind. The soul that sins shall die. But thank God, there's another decree, a second decree that has gone out from the throne. A decree of grace. And here it is. <laughs> Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And the Lord has sent out his couriers. You know when you think about it? His messengers. The New Testament royal steeds. They're called ambassadors. And the message is to be proclaimed in all the world. And I, you know, I, I was just challenged as I was going through this passage to just grow in whatever means necessary to make the message of God's grace known to this world. The good news, the decree of grace that you can be reconciled to God. Though there be over your life a, a judgment and a decree of doom for your sin, the good news is that, that God has done something for you and you can be reconciled to God. In fact, you don't have to do anything because God has already done it for you. All you have to do is Receive the good news and believe it. Jesus died for you. And you need not add anything to what he has done. You can't do anything to soften his heart even towards you. Because, of, because God's heart is already soft towards you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. And the decree is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you put your trust in Jesus, you will be saved. So you know, you think about the Jews. I mean, this is really one of the great illustrations of the gospel message in the Old Testament. All the Jews had to do, it's a great illustration of grace, all they had to do was believe the new decree and act on the new decree. And they would be rescued from death. And God has a way to save sinners and those who are under the decree of his doom of his judgment, and it's through the decree of grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Two things. Believe in the decree, act on the decree, and you will be saved. See, Jesus said this when, when Nicodemus came to him in John chapter three. He said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Do you know that God doesn't want your life? He wants to give you a new life. You must be born again. He doesn't want your old life. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to save you. He wants to regenerate you. And, and the, the Jews had a decree that condemned them, but they also had to believe that the king was on their side and that he had issued another decree to save them. And, and we too have to believe that the king is on our side and believe in his grace. Uh, the Bible says that when we do that, when we put our faith in the Lord, the righteousness of Jesus is appropriated to us. That a righteousness comes from God uh, to us that depends on faith. We read in verse 13, it says, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. 
And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly and ur urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. The message getting out depended on the work of the couriers and there was an urgency to the job that needed to be done. And it just reminds us that God has chosen us as his steeds, his ambassadors, his messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim good news to all creation. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. You know, and I, and I speak to myself here as I speak to the church, I think, you know, sadly, the messengers, the royal steeds are so easily distracted, aren't they? The cares of this world, the comforts of this life, the, the deceitfulness of wealth. There just, just a few things to distract us. And this morning, I, I, I would say that this passage, and I think the Holy Spirit would speak to remind us, is that those who are living under the decree of doom desperately need to hear about the decree of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And some will respond with indifference. Others in unbelief. But yet others, they will believe and be saved in the name of Jesus. They will believe and they will act on the decree of grace and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And this passage challenges me and I hope it will challenge us this morning as a church to be swift steeds ambassadors for the kingdom of God. We read in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes. What, what a changed situation. Remember, sackcloth and ashes and the whole scene. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. It's like the angels rejoicing. The Jews had, had light and gladness and joy and honor. Verse 17. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reach, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. Another meal. And, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And I just love some of the pictures of what's going on there. The, the joy and the gladness and the celebration and the partying and the, the feasting and the holiday that erupted amongst the community as this decree went out and as people discovered this grace that God had allowed to happen by his hand of providence in this great kingdom. Less than nine months, though, away, there would still be a, a battle, and we're going to read about that next week. They, they would not be kept from battle, but the beauty is this. They were given hope in the midst of battle. It, it wasn't now death. There was hope in the midst of the battle. And... and I think Mordecai is a great picture of what happens to you and I spiritually as we receive the grace of God. You know, he's clothed in these robes, blue, the picture of eternity. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's, he's wrapped in white, a picture of purity and righteousness and we're, we're clothed in the righteousness and the purity of Jesus as we place our faith in him. Crown is set upon his head, Think of the crown of the victor that the scripture says that we will receive. He, he's wrapped in purple, color of royalty. As he has this new position in the kingdom. 
And again, you know, the people feasted. And, and with the joy of the Lord in their lives, you know, they were so happy. I, I think, you know, there's, there's nothing more sad than a Christian with a sour face. We have salvation. We have grace. Our lives should overflow with the joy of the Lord. And while this whole scene is going on, something amazing happens in this story as you read it. At the end, it says that many peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Uh, what a, what a, an amazing thing that people just said, man, I want to be Jewish. It's a good thing to be Jewish. It's a good thing to be counted amongst the people who belong to the Lord. I want that. And they declared themselves to be amongst the people of God. And you know, it's, it, it's interesting that this great battle is still in front of the people nine months away. But it's one of the reasons that God leaves us in places where we still have battles to fight, where we still have to go through hard times. It's so that others will look and say, look at what they're going through, and yet look at their joy. What's with those people? I want what they have. I want what they have. I, I need to discover, to discover what this decree of grace is in their lives. As we wrap up this morning, these two decrees in the Medo-Persian Empire, the same two decrees in a sense hang over our world. One of doom. The soul that sins shall die. And, and the second, a decree of grace. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. What a great hope. And you know the difference between what you experience, which decree will be your reality, is based on your choice. Will you choose in faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and find grace? Or will you be indifferent and unbelieving and leave your life under the decree of doom? Would you guys stand with me this morning? This morning I would just, uh, if, as the worship team comes, I would just challenge you. You're a royal steed. God saving you is not the end of the story for your life and your family and your friends. He's, he's anointed you his messenger, his ambassador, given the task of making known the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, in a fresh way, I invite you, as we pray, to, to just say, God, I, I want to respond to that commission. Lord, here am I. Send me out fresh and new again.